Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm joined by Aaron, as usual. And we're starting today's episode off with a warning from Professor Richard Wolff. The capitalism that we have inherited is full of the most fundamental challenges you could imagine. You are entering a time of major struggle, major change. Welcome to the show, everybody. So Aaron, we live in a democracy. Have you ever been in a workplace that was democratic? A workplace that was democratic? You mean a workplace where the boss tells me what to do, but it exists within a society where we vote for politicians who can regulate the businesses? No, no, no. Yeah, not like that. No, workplace democracy would be like your boss could only tell you what to do after a process had been completed that you had a voice in. Like you're saying I get a vote on the boss's decisions? Are they even really a boss then, if I have a voice in yeah, it? Yeah, or you could have a level of democracy, I guess, where like your boss could still tell you what to do, but you could give meaningful feedback that would impact the way that operations work. Like that'd be sort of democratic. Or if like different employees could come together around sort of shared interest and help push the company in different directions, that could be sort of more democratic. Have you ever experienced anything on that spectrum above just like being told what to do? I just want to run through all my jobs one at a time and think about it. First one, no... Second one, what was it? No, yeah, no. Uh, third one, nope. Fourth one, nope. Fifth one, nope. Sometimes bosses will listen to things I say, and if it's like they would have done it anyway, then they might listen to me and something might change. But usually there's nothing going from me decision-making wise. It's all coming at me. The decisions are coming at me, not right. from that me. You're being like as an employee, with the employee-employer relationship that you're experiencing, like you're being acted upon. Yes. Like you're coming to this space where there is like an autocratic either manager on behalf of boss or boss directly who's saying like, you know, you do this at this time for this long. Don't do it that way. You were late two times. That means you can't get a 10 cent raise that sort of stuff. And the only time that your feedback has been meaningful has been like, we could make more money if you did it this way or something. It's never like, oh, I think that I should get more vacation time or us cleaners should get a little more break time because honestly, that amount of work doesn't really exist. We have to pretend to be working to fill the day. Yeah, not only has that kind of feedback by me never been taken by a boss, it's never even like occurred to me to say, hey, why don't you just extend our breaks? Doesn't that sound good? Like it just as a suggestion, it's almost absurd to think that I would suggest that because it's so normal that nobody cares. And of course, the employees want more breaks. Yeah, these employees are insatiable for their breaks. You, <laughs> you give them 15 minutes. Oh, they come asking for more 20 minutes. Where does it stop? How many breaks do you need? Employees, you know, an inherently lazy bunch, just break hungry. Uh, <laughs>
And like the answer to my same question for me is no. In every instance, I can think of times where I've had good bosses who were receptive to critical feedback, or I think would have been receptive to critical feedback, but there's never any formalized mechanisms. And ultimately it was always under their command and control, the sort of Damocles of their power over, even with the best boss possible. At the end of the day, the rubber hits the road with who can fire who and when, and under what pretenses, who controls the paychecks, who, oh, yeah. all that sort of, that employer employee relationship. Yeah. Talking about whether they take our feedback and stuff. Like I can see there's some democraticness to a place that does that more. Thinking on like a spectrum. But like ultimately the real democratic change would be like, could the majority of the people in this workplace make a decision that the boss doesn't like and the boss has to accept it? Well, then, yeah, again, maybe they're not really the boss anymore, right? At that point, they're just another, like, they might be a coordinator or who knows what the boss in any given situation does, but... Um, I mean, if there's going to be a boss, they can rotate and stuff like that. Yeah, something like that. That feels like that would be the core of democracy, right? Like, decisions are made collectively by all the people involved and not by one person at the top or a group of people at the top or whatever. Like that's the difference between democracy and non-democracy is everyone gets a say. So yeah, I've never participated in a democratic workplace yet. It's always been a command and control workplace underneath the boss who had hiring and firing power, the ability to punish me for insubordination and who set the bounds of my work. The same case for you, that employer employee. Yeah. That makes the two of us. And it's not just the two of us. It's almost everybody on this earth and yeah. the only planet in the solar system with jazz that we're aware of yet. So it's not all bad. But one of the negative features it has is an employer-employee relationship. And uh, that is something that our guest today, Richard Wolf, professor of economics at U of Amherst, among other things, is a specialist in. So excited to have him join us today to talk a little bit more about this workplace relationship and capitalism and what it would mean to move beyond it. I'm just really excited for this one because he's, you know, Professor Wolf. He's like a giant person in the socialist economic sphere. I just feel like it's a big event. I don't know. I wanted to mark it somehow to mention how big of an event it was, to me at least. Richard Wolf is actually his economic update video lecture show that he does. He's just blown my mind a bunch of times over the years and just helped me think about economics and capitalism differently, where I had had these misconceptions that he helped clear up. And he's the founder of Democracy at Work. And he just wrote a book about capitalism failing us during the pandemic called The Sickness in the System. Right. And I read his book, Understanding Marxism, and it was really good. It's a really approachable like introduction to the ideas of Marxism. He always words things in a really approachable way, like focusing on the employee-employer relationship rather than saying, the means of production are owned by private hands or, or like private ownership of the means of production. Like it means the same thing. It means one person owns the workplace and the other people work for them. But like that employer employee relationship, it's a much less distanced way to put it that I think people understand better than private ownership of the means of production. It's great. It's a great interview or it's going to be a great interview. You can admit you heard it. It's good. It's good. He's great. <laughs> Okay, we recorded this it. after the interview. It's <laughs> we don't record the whole show in order. Fine. <laughs> One take. Just like, it. <laughs> Professor Wolf, are you on the line? Now let's switch over. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by a society that is run by investors and managers. Hi, I'm a blood-sucking ghoul, and I'm here to talk to you about why our society should be led by whoever has money to invest in things at the expense of everyone else. 
Are you sick and tired of having no commands to follow? Do you need to be controlled by a parent-style figure in order to ensure you achieve productivity? Are you uninterested in the environmental, social, and ethical impacts of your work? Well, then I have got a socioeconomic system for you. It's called capitalism. Through the power of command and control management at the direction of capital investors, capitalism makes just following orders easy and profitable for all. It's not unethical. It's merely amoral. Wink. Neither moral nor immoral. Amoral. And that's the investors and managers' promise. Because people who have money to invest in things always make good choices. That's why they have money. And for those of you out there saying there's some conflict between investors making money for themselves and doing what's best for society as a whole, shut up. God, that's not true. Uh, and you're fired. A management-driven society run by investors and managers. Doing what your manager tells you because that's what the investors demand. Proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. I'm joined now by Professor Richard Wolf. I'm excited to have this conversation today, but I just want to start by saying there was a time where you really blew my mind in talking about this notion of capitalist efficiency, and you were asking the question of efficient for what? Is this efficient for money? Is this efficient for resources, speed? Uh, there's all these different types of efficiency, and under the sort of like capitalist rubric, they treat it as one thing, which just means you know economic efficiency at the cost of other efficiencies, and that really sort of blew my mind, and I think is. One of the incidents that was involved in me sort of becoming uh, the socialist person that I am today. So I wanted to start by thanking you for that. All right. Well, look, that's why I do it. I, my hope is to reach people with it. And so that's the nicest thing I could hear. So thank you. So you're a professor emeritus of economics, and you're also a critic of capitalism. So I wanted to ask, what is the economic critique of capitalism? Let me give you a kind of a general answer and then jump to a little bit more particular answer. The general answer is that the system's virtues, and capitalism has virtues, it has been technologically very dynamic, able to develop the capacities of the human community in terms of travel, in terms of transforming nature to meet our needs and things like that. And I don't deny it. I don't minimize it. But it has also brought with it a whole host of catastrophic problems. And so a reasonable human being, I think, would logically have the desire to somehow hold on to what was positive about capitalism while doing better than what was negative. I think that's what motivated people in slavery to fight to go beyond slavery, or people who were serfs in feudalism to go beyond feudalism. They didn't need to deny that those systems also had developed the human community, the human capacity along the way. Rome, which was a slave system, Greece, which was a slave system, also produced Aristotle and Plato and lots of inventions that have been very useful. But that didn't mean you therefore had to go to sleep and forget about social change, because it also produced very negative things, for example, human slavery, etc. So having said that, let me tell you in general what the problems with capitalism are. Number one, it produces stupefying inequality. I assume I don't have to give you many data. I'll just give you one. 
During the 14 months of pandemic, from March of 2020 through May of 2021, the 600 or so billionaires we have in the United States increased their collective wealth by just shy of another trillion dollars. That's 600 individuals in a population of 325 million. Over the same period of 14 months, 82 million American workers had to file for unemployment compensation because they were out of work. Some were only out of work a few weeks, some were out of work the entire 14 months, and many in between. But we only have a labor force in this country of 160 million. That means that more than half the people in the working class had to be unemployed for part of the year, which usually means psychological stresses, health stresses, using up of any savings you might have, becoming a burden on your family and your friends, extraordinary experience, while the 600 richest people became even richer. It is stupefying. A system that works like that, whose injustice when you're unequal like that, takes you back to ancient Egypt and pharaohs. You know, the pharaohs spent a lot of money building pyramids. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are organizing rocket ship flights to the moon. I mean, what in the world is going on when we have every social problem you can think of, which could be eased if that money was used in more socially responsible ways? An economic system that performs like that strikes me as leaving, I'll be polite now, a lot to be desired. The second critique I would make is that the system is extremely unstable. Every four to seven years, for 300 years now, this system crashes. Sometimes the crashes are short and shallow. Other times they cut deep and they last a long time. The Great Depression lasted 11 years and cut very deep. The Great Recession of 2008 and 9 cut deep and lasted two, three years. We don't know how long this one is gonna last, but it has cut very deep indeed. And I would ask, what in the world are we doing with an economic system that every four to seven years throws millions of people out of work, many of them lose their homes, see their marriages explode, see their educations go bye-bye, et cetera, et cetera. This is a level of instability that anybody, I think, who's even minimally rational would see as a very serious flaw. Okay, now the last general one. Capitalism is a system that organizes the production sphere very differently from the way it organizes our residential lives. If we live in a community here in the United States, we get to vote at least once a year on who's going to be the mayor and who's going to be on the city council and then who's going to be a state official and who's going to be a federal official. We have, granted, it's not very much, but some control over the people whose decisions affect our lives, the notion of democracy. But when we come to the enterprise, we don't. We give it a pass. We have a situation where when you cross the threshold, from your home into your workplace, here's what happens. Inside the workplace, typically for eight hours a day, more or less, 40 hours a week, you are told where to sit, what to do, 
how to do it, with what tools to do it. And then very interestingly, at the end of the day, you are told, go home. What you have poured your brains and muscles into producing is automatically somebody else's. And you are excluded from any role to play in what is done with the fruits of your labor. Not only that, the employer can shut the business down. And who is the employer? The tiny group of people, the individual who started the company, or maybe the family that inherited the company, or maybe the corporation with a few major shareholders that chooses the board of directors who makes all the decisions. You're a worker, you have to live with the decisions, just like you have to in your residential community, live with the decisions of the mayor and the city council and the Congress people and all the rest, but you have some power over them. In the workplace, you don't have any power. And if you say boo, they can fire you, punish you for a dissenting perspective on anything because it's not your place. And it is their power to deprive you of your job, deprive you of your income, to deprive your dependents, who are utterly innocent in all of this, of their sustenance. It's extraordinary. It's an economic system that systematically excludes democracy from the workplace while celebrating itself as democracy incarnate. Wow. That goes beyond lying. That is a kind of failure on so massive a scale. Words fail me. And it seems to me we can do better than that. And I would tell you that the consequences of this are very serious. If you allow a small number of people at the top of every workplace to have all that power, guess what they're going to do? They're going to take the lion's share of whatever wealth this enterprise produces for themselves, which explains the inequality I just finished talking about. So the structure of the workplace is bound up with the inequality the system produces. I can give you another example. This one I'll draw from ecology. If the decision has to be, let's have this new technology, which will increase the profits of the business. On the other hand, this new technology puts a lot of crap into the air, which it is unhealthy for us to breathe. Okay, we've got to work this out. Profit is nice. Clean air is nice. How do you balance that? Well, we don't have that in capitalism. Why not? Because the people who make the decisions are the ones who get the profit. So, of course, the profit means more to them than the general health, especially because they're rich and can live in a gated community 30 miles away, which has built into it machines that clean the air before they breathe it. Whereas the mass of the employees who live 50 yards from the factory have none of those options. So the irony is the mass of the workers are more interested in healthy air because they don't get the profits. But the tiny group that runs the enterprise is more interested in the profits because they get those. Okay, this is going to give you a polluted environment because the structure is tilted in the favor of profit calculation and at the expense of public health. I could go on, but it seems to me these are all effects of a way of organizing your production, which is uniquely capitalist, 
other systems don't do this. Slavery doesn't have an employer-employee relationship. The slave master is in a different relationship to the slave. The Lord is in a different relationship to the serf and feudalism. Those are different and have different consequences. And I would argue we can do better than the capitalist dichotomy of employer-employee, and we ought to do that. Welcome back to Moon Settlement Colony News, and we are your hosts, Flip Florp and Zeep. And I'm Flip Florp. Good traditional moon names. And what a better day to be traditional than National Pharaoh of the Moon Day. Now, when I think of National Pharaoh of the Moon Day, I just think back to the moon races and, oh, is Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos going to get to the moon first and mm-hmm. establish a colony of their very large corporation there? Who's going to bring the workers up first and yeah. turn this into productive land, just like Adam Smith talked about? Put the moon to work, finally. And I'm just so thankful that it was Pharaoh Bezos. A just ruler he is. Pharaoh Bezos, of course, installed tree booths. If you're getting a little bit upset, you can go sit in the booth mm. and you can look at photographs of trees, glossy or matte. That they're hoping they can grow on the moon in 20 to 30 years. You know how it is on the moon without air. You gotta pay your way with company script. Today is Pharaoh's Day, a moon-wide event where we have parades up and down the streets and all the major moon cities, paying testament to our CEO and boss, the employer to our employee, we tip our little Amazon hat to him and humbly thank him for not firing us. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm so glad I'm not fired. So we've got a reporter on the scene at the Pharaoh's Day Parade playing the lunar anthem in Bezos We Trust. We are here today on the streets of Moon City Prime, breathing fresh, recycled air, watching the parade as it goes by. Uh, Sir, sir, what do you think about the parade, about Pharaoh's Day, anything? Yeah, I just want to say I love Pharaoh Bezos. I just think he's such a just ruler. I don't mind the surveillance. That data really helps me to optimize. So I guess that's all I can say, really, is that this employer-employee relationships has scaled up wonderfully to the stars. Somebody's got to be in charge, right? I'm glad it's uh, Pharaoh Bezos. Yeah, imagine if we were all driving Teslas out here, right? (laughs) Ridiculous. Uh, What a jackass that other Pharaoh would have been. That's right, but somebody does have to be in charge, and so I'm going to get me one of those ice cream bars in the shape of Bezos' head. (laughs) That looks fun, doesn't it? I I wish I was there, but I'm here. Next up, we've got a panel from one of the biggest questions that's plagued this entire moon colony from the beginning. Has moon capitalism fulfilled its utopian promise, or is it just about to? a fierce debate within a narrow spectrum of opinion that takes what we want you to believe for granted, but makes you feel like there's still some disagreement going on. Now, we never deny that moon capitalism has been a much vaster big success than plain old earth capitalism. Nobody was ever promising the moon and saying that it was going to be perfect, but Professor, you think that moon capitalism has fulfilled its utopian promise altogether, isn't that right? Like you said, No one was promising the moon here, except in a very literal sense, in which it was promised and it was delivered. Now, admittedly, there are still crashes every four to seven years. Inequality is worse than it's ever been. I just hold the position that that doesn't matter. And sure, there's, you know, ecological stuff happening on Earth, the materials we send up and stuff. Just looking at the moon, nothing happening on Earth for a second, just the moon. We're talking about the moon, after all. On just the moon, there's a positive ecological impact. There is experimentally short-lived trees in special facilities. You know, one of these days, 20, 50 years maybe, 
We're going to have that breakthrough. Terraform the whole thing. Have wildlife. New moon creatures maybe might evolve. I could not disagree with my opponent more. Obviously, crash is still happening every four to seven years. Inequality on the rise. That doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, who cares? But like water is also wet. It's like we know that. My point is the way that we interpret the improving ecology Mm -hmm. should be as a future success. The way that you're interpreting it as a current success. I'm not interpreting anything. I'm talking about the simple facts of the matter that we have sprouts that last four or five days, sometimes even two or three weeks. Okay, yes, that's a limited success, but it's not the full promise of Moon The promise was never, oh, a full success right away. It's like magic. The promise was a developmental process of reaching these new frontiers over time through the guidance of the pharaoh nobody is questioning laborers in a command and control relationship and that is the promise has been delivered i feel like it's jumping the gun to say we completely fulfilled everything that moon capitalism has to offer like, us. i don't know and how I it think... can be any more delivered by this point it's going so perfect it upsets me that you would even question it it's like a moral failing it's a moral failing to act as if we're already there because that will mean that the people the workers won't want to work as hard for Pharaoh Bezos. They'll get lazy. And we don't disagree on any of the facts. We disagree on who is immoral, and it's you. Well, and I agree on a lot of the facts. But when it comes to the interpretation, just honestly, I'm wondering if you... Are you against the Pharaoh? Do you That's hate Pharaoh Bezos? Excuse me, please don't interrupt. Are you against the Pharaoh? Oh, yeah. Of course, you would just accuse me of that to cover up for my accusation of no, you, which I was, was first I was chronologically. No, I was already going to say that, actually. Oh, were you? I think well, you, you anticipated didn't. where I was going. I, I didn't tried to cut me off anything. of the pass in exactly the I way just you're was accusing Logically piecing together one plus one does equal to this person is against the pharaoh. This person is against the pharaoh. Their mask is coming off. Exactly. That's Uh, what I was piecing together about you. You said it perfectly. No, you. (laughs) That debate looked fun, didn't it? Ugh, yeah. Wish I was there. We've had it a hundred times before and we'll have it a hundred times again. It's the whole discourse that's in service of power, not any one particular position within it. And all the negative things that come with it don't matter. And that's what people participating in all these revolts around the moon need to remember. We've talked about this before. Everyone participating has been diagnosed with moon madness. Yeah, it's just moon madness. As we all know, one of the symptoms is people start to believe that as employees, they can tell their boss what to do if there's like more of them or something and they have a majority. It's a bizarre idea being stamped out through this medicalization effort. A symptom of the zero gravity environment. You know, it's proposed that our natural propensity for finding people to lead us. Oh yeah, someone's gotta be in charge. That propensity is a grounded feature of Earth. And when you bring people into space, you become a little ungrounded. You start to think workers should come together and make decisions. Uh, It's almost too ridiculous to say. Yeah, it's a weird thing that when you get out in space and you see the entire Earth from the window of that spaceship, it almost seems like everyone down there is all the same and that it's just one planet and that there's no distinction there's no hierarchy they they report this delusion that someone doesn't have to be in charge basically so they're under watch and they always have tree booths so you can't complain too much try as they might even the glossy aren't good enough you spring for glossy and this is what you get god and finally on a very practical note Deposit day is coming up. The extraction to Earth is going to be picking up everyone's Bezos bottles. As we know, each individual citizen of the moon is assigned an individual Bezos bottle in which they shall collect all of their urine at all times, far more efficient than the Earth toilet system. The Bezos bottle is then shipped via Amazon delivery services down to Earth to be flushed and then back up again. 
to live in ecological unity with the moon, people caught illegally dumping the urine from their Bezos bottles can be subject to termination. So make sure to save up enough company scrip to help pay the excise fees, pay the docking fees, pay the dumping fees, because we need to ship all that urine back to Earth to be flushed down toilets there. And now back to the parade. So the qualitative feature that sort of defines capitalism as we know it is this employer-employee relationship. Right. And in order to transcend capitalism and move to a post-capitalist or socialist system, it necessitates looking at that employer-employee relationship and changing it qualitatively to a different type of relationship, a relationship that isn't based on that command and control relationship, but is rather based on sort of a thriving, participatory, democratic sphere of labor. This can be sort of like one of the component pieces to move beyond capitalism. I would agree with you, but I would take you one step further. I think it is the, the word the with a line under it, or maybe two or three lines under it. I think it's crucial to understand the history of capitalism, like the histories of slavery and feudalism before that, is punctuated from the beginning by people who wanted better. Every system has that. People who love it, people who hate it, and a lot of people in between. But there's nothing bizarre or unusual about capitalism having critics. Every system has critics. And the critics of capitalism have tried in a variety of ways to go beyond it. The Soviet Union was an effort, an experiment. People's Republic of China, Cuba, you know them as well as I do. Those are experiments. And like the early experiments in every social change, they did some things well, and they did other things poorly. And the job of those who come next, like us, is to do the work, analyze what did they do we want to hold on to. Like we ask of capitalism, what did it achieve that we want to hold on to? And what did it do very badly that we do not want to hold on to? If you think like that, I think you will come to the conclusion that the early socialism, and by early, I mean 19th and 20th century, so up until about now, that socialism was focused on bringing the government in to offset what the private capitalists were doing. So if they were giving people terribly low wages, the government comes in and declares a legal minimum wage. If they were making inequality too enormous, the government came in and taxed at least a portion of what the rich had to give the poor something more than what the capitalists themselves were doing and would have done. And so you see this notion of the government coming in. I think those experiments are now behind us. And we learned there were some achievements of bringing the government in. Let's hold on to those. But there was an empowering of the government over and above the individual citizens that was very bad, and we don't want that. So how do we move beyond capitalism without repeating the mistakes of earlier efforts to go on? And that's what brings us to what was missing in the earlier efforts that we want to focus on now. And the answer is the relationship at the workplace. To be crude, let me put it to you this way. After the Russian Revolution, what they did was they got rid of the private boards of directors 
of their corporations and they substituted state officials. But there was still the dichotomy between a small number of people making all the key decisions and a very large number of people doing the work. Still a kind of command and control, employer-employee relationship. Right. I am not denying that it was different. I'm not denying that having the government come in achieved a whole bunch of things that are valuable. But I think we can do better than simply changing who is in that dominant position. We have to change the very situation that puts anyone in that dominant position. Hi, everyone. We just wanted to do a quick break from the interview. As you know, at Seriously Wrong, we're advocates for the abolition of the Monday, a reproportioning of the work week to four days out of seven, with Tuesday as the typical first day of the week, making Monday a type of workers' holiday. As a demonstration, we wanted to show what the process of trying to achieve that would look like first under capitalism, but then under worker self-directed enterprise, socialism. For our first demonstration, Abolishing Mondays Under Capitalism. Say, uh, boss, me and a vast majority of the other employees, we were thinking it'd be good to shorten the work week to four days and just never work Mondays again, but still get paid the same. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> oh shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> you workers are just too much sometimes. That's hilarious. But seriously, no, not unless we're forced by law. Oh, and you and anyone who ever speaks of this again, all fired. Bye now. Enjoy being broken, starving. You are dead. And now a demonstration of this same process under worker self-directed enterprise, socialism. Say, co-workers, can we deliberate this proposal to shorten the work week to four days without a decrease in pay, abolishing Monday once and for all? I would even be fine with a modest decrease in overall wages if it meant that our per hour rates were boosted or it would impact our profits. If I could just chime in, it's also worth noting, I think we're in an ecological crisis right now. Some people are saying that our society's overproducing. There could be ecological positive impacts to slowing down, uh, even if that meant a decrease in overall profits. Pushing production to its limits actually has very little to offer each of us individually if it's partitioned out fairly. I favor a model which shortens each individual day rather than reducing the number of days. It seems like that would be better for people who live close to work a lot of the time, but people who have more of a commute would probably favor the four-day model. Well, is there any reason to have one universal standard? Can we maybe plan our production around the variable preferences of workers whenever possible, united under a common goal of shrinking the work week for all? Yeah, I think so. Perhaps we could study the issue and sort of have a transitionary period, reducing work hours a little bit. Motion to tentatively approve a variable work week decrease pending development by the Workers' Production Planning Committee and a full account of the production trade-offs therein. Aye. 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 And to send this proposal to affiliated industry organizations for dialogue and feedback. Aye. 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 The motion is passed. This has been a demonstration of what it looks like to propose a really good idea, shortening the work week, giving people more time to spend with their families under two different economic systems. And now back to our show.
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Workers, they have a different relationship to profit because it's spread out amongst them. And so it's easier for them to have a more nuanced and in-depth conversation about all the different aspects of these production decisions. A question that I sort of have is why do you think it's of a strategic importance to focus on democracy of the workplace rather than say increasing democracy within parliamentary systems or within communities or uh, you know like other places where sort of democratization can happen why the workplace in particular well you know there are many things one of them is very how shall i put it strategic the workplace has been exempted we have had a tradition of talking about democracy when it comes to the residential communities where we live we have fought for that, you know, the history of the United States. If you look at that, when we were an independent country in the end of the 18th century, people don't know this, but only a tiny number of people were allowed to vote. White males with property. That meant the vast majority of people who were either not white or not male or not property owners were excluded. They had to fight across the entirety of American history right till this moment because we see what the Republicans are doing, trying to get Blacks and others to be unable to vote. It's an endless struggle to make universal suffrage real. But in that struggle, there's a constant debate and discussion about democracy, its virtues. But when it comes to the workplace, it's as if the act of ideological formation has been terribly successful. It has rendered the workplace as though nature or technology or something mystical and magical makes democracy not relevant there. Let me give you an example. I've been a professor all my life. When I try to teach this to my students, I get a very interesting reaction. Gee, in the workplace, somebody has to be in charge. So I then tell them the story. When we had kings in the world, emperors, czars, all of these individuals who sat at the top of society and all the rest of us were their subjects, we were told by the people who defended monarchy that you have to have somebody in charge. Sometimes this was a religious argument, namely that the guy in charge talked to God and we needed to be in touch with God because uh, what would happen to us if we weren't? The Pope inside the Roman Catholic Church still has elements of this idea. But even if you weren't religious, you could also see we have to have somebody in charge. And then came the 18th century. We cut the heads off of a whole bunch of kings all at once. And we were without kings. And the world didn't fall apart. And the great plagues didn't consume us. And all the horrible stories that had been told about why you have to have somebody in charge were looked upon as quaint, out-of-date bullshit. Okay, so I'm here to tell you it's exactly the same in the workplace. Where did you get the idea there has to be somebody in charge? I mean, what are you doing? And even if you believe it, how do you decide who's in charge? Why should the same person be in charge all the time? Why don't we rotate? If we think there's a function that has to be performed, that's one thing. But there is no logical link that suggests the same people have to be in that position that we think is necessary. That would make us into unequal in a way that would 
undermine the community we're trying to create. So if we think there's a position that has to be occupied, the logical way, and by the way, this is as old as socialism, is that you rotate people. You're going to be in charge for a year, and then somebody else will be, because it's a good discipline. You're not going to do to other people what you might if you're in charge, if you have to face the fact that next year the roles will be reversed, and you don't want that fellow to be angry at you that you abused when you were in charge, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it seems that what we can do is we can approach, and this is the strategic question that I know you're thinking about as well, we can approach the working class of the United States, for example, with a radically new and different idea of what socialism is, very different from what they've been taught to believe it must be or to fear it or to hate it. It's a change in the way you work every day. It's a change in the way five out of seven days a week are going to be experienced by you. You're not going to be a drone that goes somewhere and is told what to do. You're going to be part of what runs this enterprise. You're going to be an equal part of what runs this enterprise. And all new skills and capabilities are going to be developed in you because that's the only way this system is going to work. You're denied developments of your own personality, your own skill set, your own capabilities when you live in a society which gives some people the executive position. Let me be very honest with you. I'm a graduate of Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. Those are the three schools I attended. I'm a poster boy for elite education. I was surrounded by people who are no different from everybody else except they came from families with money who got them into those schools and they're trained in those schools. When I was a freshman, the week before school started, we had freshman orientation and I'm sitting there in some magnificent building in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard and the president of Harvard addresses us as the incoming freshman class. And here's what he says, I didn't make this shit up. I don't have the imagination to do that. He says, look at the man to your left. We all turned left. Look at the man to your right. We all turned right. By the way, in those days, they didn't let women in. Women were at a place called Radcliffe, which is about seven blocks away from where Harvard was. And then the president says, one of them is going to be a senator, and one of them is going to be a captain of industry. I want to welcome you gentlemen to Harvard, because what we teach you here is how to rule the world. I'm an 18-year-old kid. My head just got three times larger because of what this man told me. But that's the self-image. And so people who come out of institutions like that think they're somehow specially made, that they are the ones who are appropriate for these dominant positions. The corollary of that way of thinking is that the mass of people are there to do what they're told. Be a good worker, be a good consumer, and otherwise, shut up. For me, democracy is the attempt to get rid of all of that. And let me make a final point. When the capitalists of this world were fighting to overthrow feudalism, which they eventually did in places like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and so on, they promised that if we got rid of lords and serfs, that we would have a capitalist system that would bring in the quotations of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity, and add the American Revolution, democracy. 
They knew that those were dreams and goals that the human community had already evolved. So they wanted to link their project of building capitalism to those desirable goals. For me, what socialism represents is the recognition that what capitalism promised, liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, it never delivered. And nowhere is that clearer than in the workplace from which democracy has been excluded from day one. And that socialism now is doing what capitalism once did, saying we have to go beyond the capitalism to get the liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy that capitalism promised but did not deliver. That is a fascinating quote, that people here are going to rule the world. To train you to rule the world. Worker self-directed enterprise and you. The goal of a worker self-directed enterprise is to end exploitation in the workplace. The easiest way to demonstrate this is by contrasting it with the capitalist system. Under a capitalist system, the firm is controlled by a private board of directors, by investors and managers, and under socialism, all workers are self-directors. The board of directors always includes all workers and no one else. That's the difference. And that's what makes it a worker's self-directed enterprise. Uh, uh, Mr. Narrator Educator Man, isn't worker self-directed enterprise the same thing as worker management? <laughs> uh, naive children. No, little Billy. Worker management and worker self-directed enterprise are two qualitatively different things. Worker management means that investors and owners are still in charge and have the option to dismantle worker management when it goes against the desires of the board of directors. And in the cases in the real world where workers have worker representatives on boards of directors, they're always outnumbered by investors and their power can be taken away at a moment's notice. That is not an enterprise that's self-directed by workers, which is the qualitative feature of socialism that we're focused on today. What about worker ownership? Is that the same thing as worker self-directed enterprise? No, Billy. Worker self-directed enterprise and worker ownership are distinct as well. Ownership makes workers into a type of worker investor through distributing stocks to them. And that's an inadequate proposal. Worker self-directed enterprise doesn't seek to make workers into investors, but to make them a new type of worker that has autonomy in an organization that's self-directed by them. Wow. What other benefits might this system have? That is a great question. Let's turn to our scientists and ask them. Hi, I'm an actor in a scientist suit. One benefit of worker self-directed enterprise is that when technological innovations begin to make labor obsolete, the benefits from that would be split fairly amongst the workers. This is in contrast to the capitalist system where technological innovations that decrease labor costs result in fired workers, potentially starving to death. Another benefit of workers' self-directed enterprise is that in interests of fairness and quality of life, workers could have their job duties rotated over time, trying out different jobs, getting training for different things, and deepening their experience and understanding of the production process that they're a part of. That autonomy will give people richer and freer lives. It's worth noting that if we want to have a democratic society overall, a democratic workplace fits into that, whereas a non-democratic workplace is obviously in conflict with that. The socio-economic system of capitalism is predicated on claiming to be a democracy 
while shutting democracy out of the workplace. And by bringing democracy into the workplace, we can break the seal on building a democratic society. And in the long term, we could have more democratic neighborhoods and cities, democratic schools where children participate meaningfully in decisions that affect their household and community because it's in everyone's benefit to ensure that they can participate in the democratic processes of society as full political participants. All of this amounts to a new frontier of human freedom that many call socialism. Wow, if scientists are saying it, I believe it. Workers' self-directed enterprise, a cure for the crises of capitalism, and a path towards a world which treats every human being with dignity and brings an end to exploitation. First in the workplace, and then the world. And now it's time for a very special Seriously Wrong investigative report. Today, we wanted to look into the claim that capitalist democratic nations are really that democratic. As we know, most people in these capitalist countries work at jobs and spend most of their days at workplaces. We sent one of our investigative reporters into the belly of the beast, one of the biggest employers in America, McDonald's, to find out, is McDonald's democratic? Hi, my name's Sean. I'm an independent investigator. I wanted to get to the bottom of McDonald's, to the truth about whether or not McDonald's is a democratic organization. I called the local McDonald's to poll employees on their opinion of workplace democracy and to speak to some workers on the front lines. Hello, McDonald's. Hi there. Am I speaking with a worker or a manager? Just a manager. I just wanted to ask, what's your opinion on workplace democracy? My understanding is that McDonald's is not a democratic workplace. So for something like that, you'd have to call the corporate office to get their response. Is there any chance I could talk to any of the workers? No. No, we can't. Well, thanks for your time. Yeah, no worries. I was disappointed that the policy was to not let anyone from the public speak to the workers about their opinions. But I was dedicated to get to the bottom of this, so I called the McDonald's customer relations line to find out what the official corporate policy is. This call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes. Thank you for contacting McDonald's Canada Guest Relations. Please proceed with your first name. Sure, yeah, my name's Sean. Sean, how can I help you, Sean? I was wondering if McDonald's decisions as a company were made by like a board of directors, investors and stuff like that, or if it was a worker-directed enterprise, like if people who make the fries or whatever were involved in decision-making at all. So your question is, wondering if the decisions are made by the board of directors or the employees working, right? Exactly. Just hold the line for a minute. So the team member just told me that most of the locations are franchisee-owned and they make their rules in accordance with our policies. Say, for example, if you own a franchise, you can make uh, decisions according to your uh, you know, needs. Uh, but I have taken the approval from McDonald's considering the operating cost that is involved. I see. So there's sort of like a board of directors would set policy and then franchisees yes. enact it on a local level? And the workplace dynamic would be like a command and control, like the boss is in charge, the owner is in charge of each yeah. franchise. Yeah. And the workers, they either do the job or, or not. Yeah. They don't really get to participate in that way. 
Does McDonald's have green policies? Like, are they trying to get more environmental over time? Yes, they do have their environmental policy. They see to it that everything is recycled and everything. I see. And does McDonald's have a policy like that to get more democratic over time? Uh, well, about that, I need to ask the management again. Okay, sure. No problem. Hello, Sean. Hi. Hi, it's going to be more management-driven. That is what I got to know. I see. So the, it's... Okay, but they are going to continue for at least some time. It should definitely be management-driven. I see. Okay, so it continues to be management-driven. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you so much. You stay safe and healthy. Enjoy the beautiful weather and have a great, great day ahead. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise to you. Yeah, yes. thank you, Sean. It looks like the corporate policy of McDonald's is to remain undemocratic, or as they put it, management-driven. I find this disgusting and immoral. I get so white-hot with rage, I don a disguise with a secret microphone and visit that same local McDonald's to speak to the frontline workers that I was denied access to. This is what I was able to uncover. Oh, are the iced coffees on for a dollar? Yeah. Cool, I think I've got cash. Hey, do you mind if I ask, when they raise the prices on the menu, do you guys get more wages or it just goes to the bus? Yeah. Right. Cool. And you don't you don't vote on the bus. <laughs> you don't vote on the bus, do you? No, no. <laughs> this has been another seriously wrong special investigative news report. Independent journalism uncovering the deep facts. Turns out McDonald's is not democratic. What a shame. And now back to our show. This and all other Seriously Wrong investigative reports are supported through generous donors like you. Please visit patreon.com slash seriously wrong to support our investigative journalism efforts. You were born in the 1940s and you've seen a lot of change in the world. There's been these different social and political eras that you've been through and it just occurs to me that having been someone critical of capitalism through all of this time, that you might have some experience or reflections. You know, a lot of our listeners are younger people, people who are sometimes, you know, freshmen showing up at the College of the Internet. I was wondering if you had any advice or reflections for them as we set out into this unknown future. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm asked the question quite often, to tell you the truth particularly in little one-on-one -on -one interactions I have with my students who ask me these kinds of questions on a very personal level. They're trying to figure out what to do with their own lives. And so it's perfectly reasonable to ask that question. In answer, let me throw a few things at you. First of all, being involved as a critic of capitalism and an advocate for, for better or worse, socialism of some kind in the future. Let me stress to you that as I look back on my life, I am so grateful that that set of ideas found a place in my head. It's like a seed was planted. And for some reason, I'm sure autobiographical, in my brain, the soil was ready for that seed to germinate. I'm killing this metaphor, but you get the idea. And the reason is, I think it made my life inestimably better. Sometimes people say, oh, you sacrificed a lot to be a critic or a radical. No, I didn't. I feel the opposite. I feel as though half luckily, half out of coincidence and accident and happenstance, I ended up this way. But I am so glad I did. It's one of those sets of decisions that not only do I not regret, but I am so grateful. I thought about being a lawyer. I thought about going into business. 
I had pressures in that direction from my family. I ended up being a teacher. That's another one of those decisions I am grateful I made. I earned my living, never became rich from it, obviously, but I earned a decent living explaining to people how to understand what was going on in the world. That's a very gratifying activity. It's got its frustrations, but it's a very gratifying activity. And you learn early on that it's very closely related to being a political activist. I mean, you're really doing the same thing in some cases with people that are out of school, in some cases with people that are in school. So for me, no, there's no no sacrifice. I need to say that because even though being on the left in America always puts you in a difficult and often dangerous situation, and I've had my share of those, it's also been a wonderful, wonderful ride. It put me in contact with very, very wonderful people among whom there were some jerks, no question, as there always are. But a lot of people that shared with me and still do the idea that we can make a better world. It is a project that brings out very beautiful things in people. You have to look for that, but it's there. So the first thing I would say is I'd be dishonest if I portrayed this as some great sacrificial giving away of things. It wasn't. Or to put it another way, if you don't do this, If you go off and in a docile way, become the lawyer or the doctor or the factory worker or the secretary, you're going to pay a lot of prices for that kind of life. That's no great decision that has avoided problems for you. Not at all. So it isn't a question of sacrificing or not. It's a question of why you sacrifice, how you sacrifice, and for what you sacrifice. That'd be my first thing. The second thing is a matter of history. I think I always understood that I was born into the Cold War period of the United States. That period after World War II, when the great enemy was the Soviet Union, ironically, because it had been the great ally during World War II, but it was now the great enemy. Everything about the Soviet Union was bad, 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 bad and evil. And everything about the United States was good, 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 great. And I didn't escape that. That was the schooling I got. I was born in Ohio, right in the middle of the United States. I grew up going to public school. I'm a product of the United States. And I'm glad that I am. I have no problem with that. But I am therefore the product of the Cold War and of a left that had to be quiet, had to be careful, was demonized left and right by all kinds of people. I remember raising my hand in class high school, college, and seeing the look on my teacher's face, in which I wasn't just asking a question, I was somehow crossing a line. And even when they were polite, I'm not stupid, I can read a face like anybody else can. And I understood that I was out of order in a kind of fundamental way. So let me say then, given all of that, that I never imagined I would see a United States the way it is now. Over most of my career as a professor, I would be invited to present my point of view, which was critical of capitalism. I didn't hide that. I was safe, by the way, because I went to all those prestigious schools, and that gave me the ability to wave my pedigree whenever the right wing got wind of me, and they would back off, you know, a little bit like the devil when you wave garlic. 
the devil backs away. Well, I wave my pedigrees and, and people who don't like what they're hearing from me feel as though they can't quite proceed. Not always, but often. So, you know, once every three or four months, I would get an invitation to give a talk somewhere or to do a radio or TV interview. Over the last eight years, I do three to five radio and television interviews every day. You are my third one so far today, and you're not the last. I have an audience for what I have to say. That is, I'm not kidding you, a thousand times bigger than anything that I ever imagined. That includes efforts of imagination after three or four beers in a short time. So when my imagination was free to go, I still never thought I would see. So I say to people now who are interested in moving in these kinds of directions, you have opportunities in the years ahead that I didn't ever have. I mean, you ought to be really seriously understanding that for better or worse, and who knows how this is going to play out, you are entering a time of major struggle, major change. The capitalism that we have inherited is full of the most fundamental challenges you could imagine. I mean, let me rattle them off. The last three wars the United States has engaged in, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. The United States has lost all three of those. Everywhere in the world, this is understood as defeats, three of them. In the United States, of course not, because we live in a comic book world where we only win. But in the rest of the world, everybody knows. And even half of America kind of knows, too. When Mr. Biden says we're leaving Afghanistan with no conditions in September, that's when you realize we lost. That has to be understood. For the first time in a century, the United States has a systematic competitor in the world. The Soviet Union was never a competitor economically, but the People's Republic of China is. And that's an altogether new situation for which the leaders and the mass of the American people have no preparation and very little understanding, which is why the efforts to stop and change that have failed for the last 25 years. Over the last 25 years, the average annual rate of growth of the Chinese economy has been between 6 and 9%. Over the exact same 25 years, the average rate of growth of the U.S. economy has been between 2 and 3%. There's no conversation. There's no competition. It's over. One side won and the other one lost. And I know this is difficult for people to wrap their heads around. I get it. But it's probably the case that the United States rode the capitalist roller coaster up for 150 years, 1820 to 1970. But the upride is now over. And let me assure you, the down ride is a hell of a lot less fun than the one going up. And the United States has to look at the one logical precursor. That's Great Britain, who lost its empire earlier than the U.S. did. In fact, part of the loss of the British Empire was the revolution here in the United States against it. But you have to understand, and this is as old as human history, 
that the upstart who makes a revolution will eventually face another one. And what this country doesn't yet want to live with is that left and right, the symptoms are everywhere. The United States has 4% of the world's population and 20% of the world's COVID deaths. We are one of the richest countries in the world. We have a highly developed medical system, but we failed grotesquely in dealing with this pandemic. We did way worse than many other countries who have a much lower level of wealth and a much lower level of medical system development. Things are very screwed up. That's why a person like Trump can become president. That's why Mr. Biden is spending trillions of dollars that he doesn't have to try to keep this ship afloat. And yeah, you can babble on about recovery and the greatness and this, and you can act like we're going to punish them with a tariff and we're going to whack them with it. You can play this game because you've been playing it for 100 years, but it's a game now and you're losing. And this is not a good recommendation to keep it going. So I would urge people now, the country needs you. It's in a dead end. It's not solving its problems. In fact, the old problems it never solved are now coming back even worse than they were before. As the system crumbles, the white supremacists have the scapegoat they want to blame, and they will. And you're seeing the country break up in terms of its regions, in terms of its two political parties, in terms of its ideological consensus. Wherever you turn, the strains and the difficulties of this capitalism mean that one of the most dynamic, interesting, and absorbing activities of the years ahead will be political struggles that will be half the effort, can we save this capitalism? And half the effort, if we can't, or if we don't even want to, where do we go next? And that's why people like me push this notion of the transformation of the workplace, because that is a way to go somewhere else, to solve some of these problems with a new direction. And that's what this country needs. If we're successful, it'll be because we're meeting the needs that come out of this situation. Thank you so much for that. This has been such a great conversation today. It's been such a pleasure having you on. So thank you so much for your, your time and attention today. All right. Take care. Seriously Wrong is a listener-supported utopian comedy podcast focused on imagining an egalitarian and non-exploitative, directly democratic, and ecological future. You can find us at www.seriouslywrong.com. That's S-R-S-L-Y, wrong with an O, dot com, or on Patreon. For just $6 a month, you can become a supporter, get access to bonus episodes, episodes before anyone else, and access to our Discord server and book club. It's a great community, and we'd love for you to be a part of it, and your contribution allows us to do the show. So thanks so much to everyone who's already donating, and, and thank you so much for listening this week. Uh, definitely check out Professor Wolf's books and lectures. There's a lot of good stuff in there. See you all next week. Next time on Seriously Wrong... 
Pharaoh Bezos eating gem-encrusted grapes surrounded by platters of the finest iguana meat and bragging about how he shut down the unionization effort by terminating a space contractor's contract, confiscating all Amazon materials, including his spacesuit, and causing him to die in the vacuum of space for trying to organize a union. Bring me more food ostentatiously covered with inedible minerals. Pharaoh hungers. Here you go, sir. All kinds of precious metals and minerals on this food, sir. And that traitorous rabble-rouser has been left out in space without a spacesuit, just as you requested, sir. The unionization threat is over, and the contractors, they're completely demoralized. I hate to do it, but it's for the greater good. Some select few are born to rule, and we face tough choices like this all the time. Of course, sir. Pharaohs and CEOs like you are the most persecuted classes in society, sir, with all we put on your shoulders. Besides, he signed a contract which had no clause for return home in the event of a termination. We offer that, when we do, as a bounteous gift. There's no obligation on our part. And when someone poses a threat to our management, our investors, we have no choice, you know? This anti-capitalist stuff is dangerous. Yes, sir. And the Supreme Court does look clear to rule in your favor and uphold your right to abide by those contracts to the letter, sir. And then you'll always have the ability to remove people's spacesuits the same way any common landlord can remove a home. It's, it's only fair, sir. It's a basic part of employment. You know, he happens to be in space. He happens to be unable to survive without our work materials. But that's no contractual responsibility of a CEO or employer. Space is a brutal place to work. You know, we lose guys all the time out here, which is why we have to have really lax regulations on space colonies. Otherwise, the work just couldn't get done. Uh, Oh, sir, you better see what's going on on Earth TV news, sir. This doesn't look good. Jubilation as Earth has fallen to socialism. The economic order of our humble planet has overturned following weeks of unrest and agitation from the good people of Earth. That's right. The uprisings, which started as outrage over the murdered moon unionist and planned to argue in court that removing a spacesuit was not a crime, quickly spread to all sectors of society as people began to put two and two together and realize that removing a spacesuit because of contracts and property rights wasn't so different from removing any other physically necessary human need for those same reasons, property rights and contracts. And so in order to be consistent, all of the people of Earth who didn't support the spacesuit thing also began supporting socialism. A decision has been made, not by any individual person, not by any one place, but everywhere. A consensus is erupting across society that we have no responsibility to follow the tangled corporate historical laws of the old world designed to pull families apart and make people subservient to the production demands of the rich and powerful, a system which can leave you floating in space to die, and we can instead, by coming together, create a new system. And that work has already begun. And a beautiful beginning it is, as the people are rising up, taking democratic control of their workplaces and of society as a whole in all aspects, passing laws guaranteeing that all people's basic needs will be respected, and making new social conventions that place the social realm, the realm of need, above the furtherance of profit and power over people and the planet. This is a major event, but it is not a one-off event. The seeds of socialism have been developing on Earth for decades. And one recent prominent example after the early overwork-related death of one Elon Musk, his widow and recording artist Grimes decided she actually is a socialist and ended up rewriting the Tesla Constitution, which she's now the owner and director of, to put workers' self-directed power at the heart of their organization and abolish her own role. 
in the studio today, we have a former business leader who has been convinced to distribute decision-making power to the workers and to join his employees on the shop floor and help with the work, not taking any more profits than anyone else. Well, thank you for having me today. I love Earth News. I've watched it for a long time. Now, Mr. Billionaire, what convinced you to participate in the dissolution of capitalism, not just willingly, but enthusiastically? Well, I realized when I saw the footage of the lifeless moon man deprived of his basic needs, floating against the backdrop of the planet I call home, something clicked. We can't have an exploitative social and economic system which puts us in command and control hierarchies of dominant submission based on economic power and capital. It's wrong. And even though I'm a beneficiary of that system, I too am dehumanized by it. I'm deprived of a more meaningful freedom of living a collaborative and free life with my fellow human beings. I'm placed in stratos apart from them that prevent us from knowing and loving each other. It enriches me to be part of this transformation. My job in history isn't to clutch onto my unearned advantages and exploit others for some temporary gain. Uh, that's all useless when you're dead. I want to take the role in history of renouncing my position, renouncing my class, because it's poison bait. I'd rather live in a world for all, by all. I'd rather repair the damage of capitalism, keep the good, throw out the exploitation, and remake society for ecological, economic, and social justice. Uh, but I can only speak as one bourgeois business owner. I, I, I can't speak for all of us. And I'll just stop the tape there. Once again, that was historical audio from the Earth News Network, and you're currently watching Earth History in the Future. Now, quick note for accuracy on that previous tape, that billionaire bourgeois business owner actually could speak for everyone. They all agreed. Everyone on the planet agreed very, very quickly because the case was so strong, so solid, and the just answer so clear. You know, it took work and time, and for a while there was challenges and drawbacks and things proceeding in different ways and different areas, things being tried out, sometimes making mistakes. But we know now from the future, ultimately, that is the moment that Earth moved beyond capitalism. The moon, of course, remained capitalist for many, many years. And although under embargo by Earth, it remained a major source of asteroid-harvested minerals to the socialist Earth colony for decades afterwards. Though many objected to and debated the ethics of this. The capitalist moon was widely considered a no-air prison, and the sanctions completely insufficient. Others thought that the detente was necessary to prevent war. Pharaoh Bezos, at this time an unnaturally old pharaoh, was working to build power and self-defense for his capitalist moon colony. And over this period, contractors on the moon, realizing what they'd gotten themselves into, were making escapes with the help of socialist rescue missions, and there was increasing calls on Earth. Workers were arguing and fighting to cease economic relations with the moon altogether. It looked like war was beginning. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week. But next time on Earth History in the Future, we are going to tell the complete story of the Moon Revolt and the last stand of Pharaoh Bezos. Ooh, that is going to be exciting. It's one of my favorite stories. And it's not going to be the version of the last stand of Pharaoh Bezos that you heard in elementary school in the future. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.